Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Over recent days, several of the 13 incarcerated Om Shinrikyo members sentenced to death have been moved to new facilities prompting speculation that their execution is imminent. In this bonus episode, a follow-up to our third episode about the infamous Japanese sect, I spoke with a woman who has researched the group for over 16 years and has also been in direct contact with ex-members. She goes by the name of Sarah Skibtower and she was kind enough to share her expertise and opinions with me ahead of this big development in the OM affair which she considers to be one of the biggest tragedies the world has ever seen. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. If you haven't listened to episode three of the show, unless you're already an expert on Om Shinrikyo, I suggest you go back and do so now before listening to this bonus episode. Sarah Skibtower is an American researcher who some would consider an Oma, though she'd never claim the title herself, but is heavily involved with this subculture of people mostly Japanese, who follow any and all news and information about the sect closely. As a bonus episode, we're taking a bit of a different form to usual, and I will just bring you some of the straight highlights of my conversation with Sarah. A quick note that Sarah's opinions are her own, and while I do agree with a lot of them, they remain hers and are not necessarily views shared by me or this podcast. Sarah's years of involvement with those who share knowledge and information about Om Shinrikyo gives her an almost encyclopedic knowledge that far surpasses my own, but she was quick to tell me that she feels there's so much she doesn't know either. Before we get into it, a content warning. Our discussion deals with subjects that some people may find disturbing, including the murder of a family with a young child, physical and mental abuse, suicide and manipulative behaviours. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. I started by asking Sarah to tell us a bit about herself and her background. Here she is. My name is Sarah Skibtower. That's the name I choose to go by online. It's the name people know me by. 
I've been personally invested in Om Shinrikyo and the Om Affair for, at this point, most of my life. So, I mean, I bought Robert J. Lifton's Destroying the World to Save It on 9-11. And then after that, I got Murakami's Underground. And Underground kind of changed the way I saw the world because the English edition of Underground by Murakami. It includes his follow-ups, his interviews with uh, members and former members of Om Shinrikyo, and I don't know, I kind of identified in a really strange way. These people were strange. There's an absurdism. There's this, this, this absurdist element to Om Shinrikyo that I kind of identified with. So some of my earliest memories, actually, uh, as a as a teenager, as a young teenager, is actually uh, finding the Aleph websites and just kind of being afraid that the the feds were going to knock down my door because technically at that time Aleph was a, a foreign terrorist organization in the United States, but I had to know. And uh, that was 2001 and then 2002, and I've been keeping up with it ever since. Yeah, right. And so it's really, it's kind of a personal passion for you. And and over the years since then, you've become pretty well versed in all of the background and the various people involved just out of a personal interest. There is that. uh, My primary interest is uh, countering violent extremism and uh, domestic terrorism. The United States, we're we're no stranger to uh, domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism. I'd I started teaching myself Japanese so that I could fall in with these communities of people online uh, on the Japanese internet. I wanted to know what they were saying. I wanted to read the, the blogs and the BBS posts of what they call omers and former members and things like that. And I started to browse the source materials. There, towards the end, you know, 93, 94, and especially early 95, if you look at Om Shinrikyo's propaganda output, it is, it's terribly anti-Semitic. And there's a lot of stuff that you can actually see in a lot of the uh, the Vajrayana releases. It's, it's what we're seeing today here in the United States and across Europe in regards to NWO conspiracies and things parroted by the alt-right, the alt-light, the Alex Jones circles, the Infowars circles, and things like that. I'm, it's just straight up. It's just written in Japanese. So to the West, you know, we can look at something, to those of us who are aware of Om Shinrikyo, and we see Shoko Asahara in his little, his little satin pajamas and yeah, it's absurd, and it is kind of humorous when you're looking at it from an outsider perspective, but once you start digging into this propaganda, it's really terrifying. So it doesn't really matter, the culture. like The culture does not matter in the slightest, because it's, it's almost like some of these things are universal, and they could easily be prevented. I guess specifically what we're talking about today is the reason we're chatting is really to do with the presumably impending executions. And I wondered if you could just tell me a bit about why why it's taken so long for these death sentences to be carried out. The Om affair was huge, or it is huge because it's not over yet. And it's really hard to overstate just how massive the Om affair really is. And we're looking at what upwards of 190 to 200 members who were pushed through the court system alone. 
of those, we're looking at uh, 13 members, including Asahara, who are facing the death sentence. The thing is, in Japan, they they won't execute unless, you know, all of the co-conspirators and all of the accomplices and potential witnesses have also, you know, had their sentences finalized or confirmed. So if you're looking at a, a giant, massive series of trials and criminal investigations, and then you factor in, you know, in Japan, their criminal justice system, large trials and high-profile cases can take 10 to 20 years, you know, just to be confirmed and finalized on their own, it's really kind of no surprise that it has taken this long. In my communities and in my circles, we kind of started to expect to see what's happening now. We started looking at that in 2011, when the last of the 13 had their death sentence finalized. Their appeals were thrown out, their requests for retrials were basically brushed aside. So we thought the gears were in motion then. What we hadn't factored in and what we hadn't counted on was that any of the three fugitives would show up. But on New Year's Eve, Hirata shows up. And then throughout 2012, the last of the two are arrested. And these trials, they, they couldn't execute any of the 13 because they needed to call really important witnesses for those. And those trials, I think it was uh, Takahashi his his final appeal was rejected in January of this year, and that's when everybody really started to look at it, and it started to hit national news again, because there's nothing standing in the way now. There's no one left to, to call to testify. There are no more trials. There are no more witnesses. There are no more appeals. And nowadays in Japan, requests for retrial, that's not going to stop them from carrying out the sentence if they think it's time. And with the way things are in Japan right now, it's uh, it's time. What can you tell me about the circumstances in Japan right now that mean that these sentences are likely to be carried out? There are a few, actually. It's a, it's some strange timing. It's almost like a perfect storm for, for what's going to happen shortly. See, this is the final year of the Heisei era. So next year, the emperor is going to abdicate and his son's going to succeed the throne, which means it's going to be a new era which means that some prisoners will be eligible for amnesty and they don't want any talk of any of the 13 as far as something like commuted sentences or amnesty is concerned. Uh, they also don't want negative press coverage and international attention regarding the executions of uh, 13 people to hinder any of the any of the imperial succession ceremonies and things of that nature. And you also have to take into consideration the fact that Abe Shinzo and the LDP, they're not doing so well right now. Abe's approval rating is abysmally low, and especially right now with the, the document scandals and the North Korea situation, things of that nature. And I wouldn't put it past the Abe administration, especially when it's looking like he might get ousted as the head of his own party to use these executions for political purposes. So you've got the end of Heisei, you've got the Mori document scandal, you've got the LDP tearing each other apart, you've got the Japanese government in just massive domestic upheaval, and then you've got the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Right, right. And can you, can you explain to listeners the significance of the order being signed by Prime Minister Abe himself? 
Oh, it's not so much that the order is going to be signed by Abe Shinzo. The order is going to be signed by the Minister of Justice, Kamikawa Yoko. If the order is going to come from the official residence of the prime minister, see, usually when these death sentences are carried out, the, the, the order itself is, you know, is drafted by officials and bureaucrats with the Ministry of Justice. And then the Minister of Justice, in this case would be Kamikawa, they get to decide whether they're going to sign it or not. For massive things like, you know, someone like Shoko Asahara and the other 12 members of Om Shinrikyo and a massive domestic terror incident, Abe Shinzo, the official residents, they get to be the one to order it. And if it's coming from the very top, Minister of Justice can't necessarily decline. So it's kind of a big deal. Can you give me a brief rundown of those who were given the death sentence and their involvement? Oh, my. Instead of going over each one individually, since we are looking at uh, 13 men here, I will put it to you like this. Uh, when it comes to the Ohm affair, you have what are called the big three. You know, the big three, the major crimes of what's known collectively as the Ohm affair, the Ohm Shinrikyo incident, however you choose to translate it. Uh, those big three, of course, you have the, uh, the Tokyo subway sarin attacks. But you also have the Matsumoto sarin attacks. And then you have the Sakamoto family murders. So out of these 13, each one was involved in at least one of the big three, as they say. So at the very top, you, of course, have Shoko Asahara, the head of Om Shinrikyo. You know, even the most liberal civil rights lawyers and those closest to the case, the ones, you know, fighting for amnesty or commuted sentences for the others, even they say that Shoko Asahara should be executed. You're not going to really find anybody who has a sympathy for Asahara for a number of really good reasons, in my opinion. But then after that, you have those who were primarily a sentence to death for their involvement in the Sakamoto family murders. And when it comes to the Sakamoto family murders, you have uh, Okasaki, or Miyamai Kazuaki. Kazuaki was sentenced for his involvement in the Sakamoto family murders. He actually split from Om Shinrikyo, I want to say, after the failed uh, elections. And he split with a lot of Om's money. And after he did so, he wrote a letter to the police telling the police where they could find the buried bodies of the members of the Sakamoto family. And the police went to go check, and you know they were off by a few meters, and they didn't find anything. And the case was, was you know, stalled until after the Tokyo Sarin attacks. And they arrested Kazuaki after he turned himself in, because he thought that by turning himself in, it would spare him the death sentence. It didn't. The only one to really be spared the death sentence was uh, Hayashi Ikuo. And then you have uh, Nimi Tomomitsu. Tomomitsu Nimi, he's a, Nimi's actually still really, really devout. Let's see, uh, Hashimoto Satoru. Now, Hashimoto is actually an accomplished martial artist. He was there for the Sakamoto family murders. He wasn't a physical participant, but he was there as a co-conspirator, so he was given the death penalty as well. And then you've got the Matsumoto Sarin attacks, things of that nature. But when it comes to the Tokyo Sarin gas attacks... Uh, Seichi Endo. Endo never released the sarin, but Seichi Endo and Tomomasa Nakagawa, those two were actually the ones who created the final batch of sarin that was used in the Tokyo sarin gas attacks. Nakagawa was sentenced to death for the Tokyo, the Matsumoto, 
and because he was arguably the most active participant in the Sakamoto family murders as well. So, Yoshihiro Inoue. Inoue was 16 when Asahara got to him. Oh, he only ever really kind of wanted to be a Buddhist priest. He chose not to go to university under orders of Asahara, and he, uh, he was uh, sentenced to life in prison. And then the prosecutors decided that that wasn't good enough, and they appealed the, the sentencing, and it was overturned, and he was given death penalty instead. So, thing is, Inoue never really killed anybody. So, Inoue is one that I kind of feel, well, personal about for a number of reasons. And uh, with the Sakamoto family murders, you have Hayakawa Kiyohide. Hayakawa Kiyohito, you know, he was the arms dealer, basically. Uh, he made almost two dozen trips to Russia. He was the one who actually uh, negotiated the purchase of the helicopter, and Hayakawa Kiyohide was also the one who purchased Banjawarn Station and went there first with Inoue. So even though Hayakawa Kiyohide technically never killed anybody and he wasn't a participant in the uh, sarin attacks, he was still given the death penalty because he was there for the Sakamoto family murders and was arguably the one that said, let's go inside. He's almost 70 years old. There's a story about Hayakawa Kiyohide. He was testifying. He went over the Sakamoto family murders so you know that the child was murdered and that they buried each member of the Sakamoto family in a different location so that the police wouldn't find and that the different jurisdictions would interfere with any sort of investigation should one be found. Hayakawa Kiyohide is the one who uh, buried the infant. When they found the youngest Sakamoto, he was actually wrapped in a blanket. Um, prosecutors pressed Hayakawa. They, they demanded to know why was the baby wrapped in a blanket. Hayakawa wouldn't answer. Uh, he finally breaks down on the stand. And he just says, I thought it was cold out. And he just kind of collapsed on the stands, just started crying. They had to actually lead him out of the room and take a recess for the day. Hayakawa, he's pretty much spent, I want to say, the past 20 years or so being as forthcoming and open as he possibly could be. In Japan, that sort of thing is supposed to maybe spare your life like it did with Hayashi Ikuo, but Hayakawa didn't get that. And let's see, I would also like to touch on another one, Masami Suchiya. Suchiya is actually the one that made the sarin, well, not the batch used for the, the Tokyo attacks, but he was he was the star chemist. But the thing about Suchiya, well, he was severely mentally ill before he ever found Om. He was a self-mutilator, a manic depressive. Suchiya was institutionalized before he was even given the order to start researching something like sarin. And he was arguably manic, perhaps even psychotic at the time, and he was restrained in a religious mental health facility. And while he was there, members of Om Shinrikyo, led by Morai Hideo, they would come and they'd park their vans with the loudspeakers in front of the hotel that had been converted into a place for the mentally ill by this Buddhist priest, and they would scream from the loudspeakers, liberate Suchia, don't listen to your parents, come home Suchia, come home. 
And they finally went up in there and basically abducted him from the mental health facility. And he went to Ulm and he was surrounded by bodyguards for a while because he was afraid that he would be taken back from Ulm and put back into the mental institution. And when he was approached by Murai, Ulm Shinrikyo's uh, biological and chemical weapons division, they were already poisoning their own people at Kamikrishiki. So he did smell mustard gas, and he legitimately thought that they were under attack by the U.S. government and the Japanese government. So when he was given the order, you know, to make the sarin, he was assured that this wouldn't be for the first strike, and he already thought that they were at war. So he did make that sarin, but he never made it for mass murder, and he didn't make the sarin that was used in the Tokyo subway attacks for mass murder or anything like that. By the time March of 1995 rolled around, Tsuchiya had already locked himself in what's known as a shield room. He was doing intensive meditation. He would do that for weeks on end sometimes because he was emotionally disturbed to say the very least. But the prosecutors didn't really listen to any of that, and they gave him the death penalty anyway. Tsuchiya's been on suicide watch intermittently for years. He couldn't even show up to most of his own trial. So is there a clause in Japan that would allow someone to avoid the death penalty by reasons of, I guess the term usually used is insanity, but like mental incapacity? Yes. Right. Oh, absolutely. Right. And in your opinion, that that should apply to him, but it doesn't for some reason. There is a stigma associated with any sort of disability in Japan, it's not as bad as it used to be. You know, it's not the 1950s anymore, but when it comes to something like mental illness, you get institutionalized in an actual medical facility, sometimes against your will for an indeterminate period of time until they decide that you're better or they decide that you're not a threat to yourself or others. Family members, they don't really talk about it. So if you have something like a mental illness or developmental disability or anything like that, if for any reason you are put in a care facility or you are put in a mental health facility, it's there's still a stigma attached. That's why Suchio wasn't sent to an actual medical facility. I can't speak for his parents. Culturally speaking, and you look at it, I want to say the Let's Live Alone initiative, the public health initiative, and that wasn't until like the late 80s. So it's entirely possible that he was never actually given the help that he needed for a multitude of reasons. So it's not exactly surprising that his defense team wouldn't automatically go with that. And there's also something to be said about the state of the Japanese prison system when (laughs) basically you have something... It's almost like a diagnosis. There's something that's prison psychosis. Uh, Basically, in Japanese prisons, you're almost expected to start hallucinating and having like have these these semi-psychotic nervous breakdowns just based on the fact that you're incarcerated in a Japanese prison. So you can't really argue something like that for your defense. And that's some of what you're seeing with the circumstances surrounding Asahara. Yeah, yeah, I guess I've read a lot about that kind of argument as to whether he is fit to be punished for his crimes and his his mental state at the moment. I have no personal sympathy for Asahara. I do have a little bit of sympathy for some of his family, and I have a massive amount of sympathy for his daughters in particular, 
at the circumstances surrounding Asahara, it needs to be evaluated. It needs to be publicly evaluated because something's not right there. And just looking at it from a Western, as arguably liberal human rights perspective, going by what I've read and what I've heard, even what's been confirmed by officials in the Japanese government, I don't know if I'd personally feel comfortable with uh, exacting death penalty on Asahara at this point, but that's not my call to make and really kind of have no right to even kind of speculate along those lines, but he immediately started to break down. I mean, he was showing signs of, of mental illness beforehand, I would say, but around 1997, it's, it's like something breaks in Asahara. He just, he, he completely loses it. He becomes his shell. He becomes incontinent. I think he's been wearing diapers since 1997. And if you read books by his daughters or, you know, if you, you read the third daughter's blog posts and Twitter feeds and the fourth daughter and the second daughter, when they could get in to visit, the stories that they tell, that oh, they're not very comforting. There's some behaviors on display here that I don't think he's faking it. There, There is something wrong with Asahara beyond what was, you know, wrong with Asahara. So it's a touchy subject. It's, it's a complicated situation to say the very least, but my opinions most closely mirror those of the Canary Association and uh, Takimoto Taro, which is basically, you know, Asahara has to go, but the other 12, arguably, maybe not. And in my personal opinion, some of these men, I don't think they should have been given the death penalty at all, if I can be perfectly honest. As I'm looking at this, and I'm seeing some men who are going to be killed without ever having, having taken a life at all, and then you have some members who were absolutely complicit and integral to designing the, the sarin production plants with a stated goal of producing 70 tons of sarin for the purposes of mass murder. And they're out and about and in front of cameras and still actively, arguably, uh, deceiving and misleading people today. So they didn't necessarily apply the law fairly and across the board, in my opinion. I don't know, it's really not my call, like I said before. I kind of feel a little bit conflicted and I, I think you probably, from what I can gather, feel a little bit the same is like we're really commenting on, on a Japanese situation from a very Western perspective. And so I thought it might be good to talk a little about your connections with people in Japan and who are a bit more on that side of things. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I guess I suppose I am just this strange foreign you know, interloper who you know, it's just kind of here watching from the outside during the final hours. But like I said earlier, you know, I started teaching myself, you know, katakana and Japanese and things of that nature after 9-11. I've been following Aleph pretty much since Aleph became Aleph. I'll put it to you like this. If you go online and you search Om Shinrikyo and you go to Google Image Search, when you type in the names of these members of Om, you can go to Wikipedia and you can even copy and paste the, the actual kanji for their names. And you go to Google Image Search and you go to Niko Niko Doga and you go to YouTube and things of that nature. Most of the footage, most of the pictures, and most of the source material out there online 
They were put there by an online community of people, Ulmers. It's like this subculture of educated uh, otaku who, you know, they, they kind of were drawn to Ulm for the absurdist elements, you know, maybe even before the Tokyo sarin gas attacks. So a lot of the stuff that's already out there that's been documented, most of the information that we can get today, even from the outside, and they were put there by, by the subculture of Ulmers. I owe them so much. The Ulmers and the former members and the ex-members, they're out there on social media. They're out there with their blogs and they're sometimes they're out there in front of the cameras telling their stories, sharing the documents they have. It's been absolutely invaluable. And I started trying to approach this, this social media community and this subculture of Ulmers, but I was way too nervous, but I still took in every single thing that I could. And from that, just reading that, what was being put out there for anyone to read publicly who wanted to, I was able to kind of get a more cultural understanding of the situation. And that was what I had wanted from the very beginning, which is why it kind of like, I feel strange at times, you know, talking about things like Asahara's mental condition or whether or not these, these people should be executed because it's, it's not really my place. Oh, I respect the uh, the victims and the bereaved families first and foremost, but I do have a personally vested interest in the Ulm affair and seeing it through to the very end. But I don't think the executions are going to be the end. And if you go and you read the the blogs and and the Twitter posts and the Facebook posts of the people who were in Ulm Shinrikyo, the people who did join Olive and the people who have joined and left Hikari no there's so much of this story that hasn't been told to a Western audience yet, but I kind of want to do it justice whenever I am able to speak about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are you familiar with Columbiners? The, the, the subculture is kind of prominent right now over here in the States, and you know, they're kind of attached to the whole true crime community. And I'm sure more than a few of your listeners are part of the true crime community. I suppose I am too. Uh, that in itself isn't anything like, wrong or, or inherently dangerous or whatever. It's just a basic human curiosity. Columbiners, they, they have a bad rep for a few reasons. Ulmers aren't like Columbiners. They, they're anti-Ulm. They're anti-Asahara, but they've also recognized the absurdity of Ulm Shinrikyo. So they're able to make jokes that are in poor taste at times, but never disrespectful regarding Ulm's crimes. So we, we don't want to see the, you know, the people that we can identify in ways and the people that we actually kind of have a very deep sympathy for. We don't want to see them killed because they were victims too. Every member of Ulm Shinrikyo is a victim. A lot of people especially in the West, like they don't necessarily comprehend that. You mentioned brainwashing earlier. What you don't understand, the, the PSI, those electrode caps, they look funny, but those electrode caps, they scalded your scalp, they gave you third-degree burns, they made you start to go blind, and people were putting these things on their children. They were supposed to put your brainwaves in sync with Asahara's, is that right? Oh, no. See, you had to empty out... You had to empty out your bad data completely and replace it with the guru's data as that was the only thing that was going to save you from falling into the infinite hells. 
So the PSI was an electrode cap that shocked your brain, and it was supposed to send Asahara's brain waves into your brain so that you could become a perfect clone of the guru. The only way to reach enlightenment, the only way to save yourself, and the only way to be pure was to become basically a clone of Asahara. And towards the end, Morai was the one who actually developed the PSI. That's basically what got him his last promotion. But the PSI was extremely dangerous and painful, and you have people in Aleph who are wearing the PSI today. And when you have things like the, the, the Christ initiation, they manufactured LSD. See, here in the West, you'll hear people, oh, well, you had all these people tripping on LSD and thinking about taking over the world. No. No, 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 no. Of the, of, I think, 1,400 to 1,600 members of Om Shinrikyo were called for the Christ initiation. They did not know that they were about to be given LSD. Om Shinrikyo produced more LSD in the period of a few months than Japan had ever had since the 60s. And it was especially potent. I feel I'm unfamiliar with the Christ initiation. Om had a series of initiations that you could get. You know, if you were a lay member, you could pay a lot of money for it. You know, we talked about the PSI and the electrode cap. The PSI stands for the Perfect Salvation Initiation. Well, the Christ initiation that started in 1994, late 1993, you, know, you were summoned, you were given a lemon drink, by Asahara or one of the top disciples, you drank the drink, you did not know that you were about to be dosed, they just gave you a diaper and had you sign a waiver, and then you drank your drink, and then you were locked in a shield room and subjected to repetitive propaganda until you had the quote-unquote mystic experience that you were you know, supposed to have, and if you had a bad time, that was because you weren't good enough. You, your stage wasn't high enough. That was the Christ initiation. And then you had to go and you had to drink a lot of hot salt water and sit in a hot bath to draw the LSD out of your system because they didn't want to leave any evidence. These people, they were abused, they were manipulated. I think that kind of leads to one of the last questions I had, which was just about, is there anything you can tell me about LF today in terms of whether they remain dangerous and I think you kind of just covered some of that in in what you mentioned. Olive is absolutely frightening right now. Takimoto Bingoshi says, you know, he's worried about mass suicides. I am too, obviously, but uh with Olive it's the PSIA are onto something when they say that, you know, the threat of indiscriminate terrorism is still kind of a thing, especially as far as Olive is concerned. Um PSIA is that the PSIA is the Public Security Intelligence Agency? They're kind of like the Japanese FBI, but it's not necessarily a direct comparison. Aleph is Om. Shoko Asahara gave the order to change the name to Aleph. Let's see, before Joyu was released from prison, because at the time they were absolutely sure that they uh, they would be legally disbanded and outlawed from the Anti-Subversive Activities Act, which that didn't happen, but the PSIA was given, you know, full clearance to monitor at any time and break in and investigate and inspect at any time over a period of three years, and they've consistently updated at a three-year interval ever since they enacted the anti-OM laws. Make no mistake about it, Aleph is 
Om Shinrikyo. They're playing the exact same propaganda. They're teaching the exact same Vajrayana stuff, the exact same POA stuff. They're using the PSI caps. It's Om. They have a they have a tape that they play, and it's basically uh, how to reincarnate with the guru in the next life. So there is a danger there. I don't know what sort of threat or how immediate or pressing it is, but the PSIA is correct when they state that Aleph is a threat right now. That Joyu took over Aleph when he was released from prison, and he did try to reform it. And whether or not Joyu tried to reform it, you know, based on his own self-interest or instructions from Asahara, anything of that nature, the fact remains he did try to reform. And then you had this internal faction split, and Joyu was basically ousted, so he packed up his stuff and left to create Hikari no Wa. So Hikari no Wa may or may not be a, a hidden Asahara sort of deal, and I'm not, I don't know enough to really speak on it. But I'm going to say that it's not as dangerous as Aleph, but Aleph is the exact same as it was in 1995 when it was called Om Shinrikyo. And from Aleph, you had a group of about 30 people who left with a former uh, a coach or a teacher, I would say. And you've got 30 of those, and that's the Yamada group. Now, the Yamada group was first publicly identified by the PSIA last year and raided last year, I want to say around Christmas time. They celebrate Shokawasahara's birthday like it's a holiday, just like Aleph does. They play the exact same songs, they do the exact same things, but they're a lot more devoted and they may or may not have direct ties to some of Asahara's family members. It's interesting that these groups are still going kind of without Shoko Asahara's leadership as well. It is a little strange, but see, in 1995, you had the mass raids and the mass arrests and whatnot, but you still had thousands of people who believed that Shoko Asahara was God. He was Jesus Christ, he was Shiva, he was Buddha, Oh, he was he was the absolute god. And those people didn't necessarily get, I would say, maybe the help that they needed to break away from that. And of the ones that remained, a lot of them still embraced the very dangerous Vajrayana doctrine, which, of course, is not legitimate Vajrayana Buddhism, but Shokawasahara's very specific bastardization of esoteric Buddhism and Vajrayana. So those teachings are still around. And they're still doing it, even without Asahara. For me, it was also really important to correct and clarify a couple of things that I got wrong or missed in the episode that I did on Om Shinrikyo. So if you wouldn't mind going over those with me, that would be awesome, because I'd really like to have that on the record. Honestly, though, um, as far as uh, any podcast that I've actually listened to on the subject of Om Shinrikyo, yours is by far the best I've heard yet. And in terms of things that you may or may not have, I don't know, got like wrong, the only mistake I can think of was uh, when you played the, uh, the the clip from the Om Shinrikyo anime. Yep, yep. But it's a very understandable mistake. Uh, you played that audio clip. I know the exact video that you got, and I know how you got there. And for someone who doesn't really, you know, know about Om Shinrikyo propaganda or just Japanese culture in general, it's a very understandable mistake. The clip that you got was actually a, a parody video. The animation is real. That is actually the real transcendental superpowers anime. But the audio is from a classic anime called Doraemon. 
So they took the Doramon theme and they put it over the intro to Transcendental Superpowers as a joke. But yeah, that's really the only mistake and it's totally 150% understandable. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hated that there was anything wrong with it. Like it really bothered me. If you wanted to, if you wanted to, what you could do to make up for your quote unquote mistake is for the love of God, please grab any clip from the actual opening of that anime because it is Shoko Wasahara singing his own anime theme song. Is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to mention or think is important for, for listeners? Absolutely. Conspiracy culture, when it comes to things like this, when it comes to instances of domestic foreign terrorism, conspiracy culture is extremely dangerous, and all you need to do is look at something like the Turner Diaries or some 1994 era Om Shinrikyo propaganda to really grasp what's happening right now, which is why uh, the thesis that I'm trying to put together for you know consideration for the Fulbright Terrorism Research Center, it's actually comparing Hideo Murai to Timothy McVeigh. There's, there's something there. That's not just my speculation. So my goal in life right now is to academically prove it. Which, by the way, Mirai? We know who stabbed Mirai, but we don't know why. I think I'm just going to go ahead and say that a lot of the questions that could have been answered about the entire Ohm affair, like the entire scope of the Ohm affair, died with Mirai. So if anybody knew, besides Asahara, it was going to be Mariah. So when you say about uh, conspiracy culture being dangerous, what do you feel is the danger there? Well, it, it can be because, you know, you, you have conspiracy culture just in general, which obviously isn't dangerous in and of itself. You know, things like, you know, who really shot Kennedy? Okay, well, then why, why was Oswald shot? Did Nixon stage the moon landing? These things are fun. It's, and it's always important to question things. That's what academia is. That's what knowledge is, right? But when you get into one third of the world's population will be destroyed and in World War III, which is actually in the Book of Revelations, and all of the religions are connected and banks and currency are part of the Jew-run New World Order, and every single major attack ever is a false flag because the people who aren't us are trying to control us. When you get to that level of paranoia and victimization, you know, like self-perceived, you know, this victimization complex, that creates the environment that gives you things like the Oklahoma City bombing. It creates the environment that gives you things like Om Shinrikyo. And it's kind of scary because it's just, it's becoming more and more mainstream. It's getting world leaders elected on platforms basically rooted in dog whistle hatred and violence. So that's such a good point. And I feel like maybe I'd never really framed it that way in my mind before to, to directly relate conspiracy culture to uh, what these groups are suggesting to people all the time. And you're so like, it's obvious now that you put it like that. 
so yeah, I think I can let you go. You've got half an hour until you're back on Parrot Watch. Yeah. Oh, I did. I did explain the parrot thing to you, right? Explain the parrot thing. Okay. Uh, the way that uh, Om Shinrikyo is written in Japanese, they used katakana for Om, and it spells out Omu. Omu is the word for parrot. So we're on Parrot Watch. Yeah. And so you're you're kind of on that each day, kind of looking to see if anything's going to be announced at the moment. I know it sounds really morbid. And I get I get no enjoyment from it, but yeah, no, it's uh, around this time uh, every day now, and it's been this way since they started moving the prisoners to different facilities throughout Japan. I've been on parrot watch every night. I'll go online with the omers, and we'll just kind of sit around and see if there's going to be an announcement from the Ministry of Justice. I left Sarah on her parrot watch as she awaits news with fellow followers that I know will be difficult for many of them to digest, but that will also be welcome to many of the victims of Om Shinrikyo and Shoko Asahara. Shizue Takahashi, the widow of one of the Kasumi Gaseki train station workers killed by the Tokyo Metro sarin attack, and who we spoke about in episode 3, is now 71 years old. She said to Kyoto News, as reprinted in The Guardian, Quote, I hope they will be executed according to law and without making a fuss about it. like to support the making of this podcast. It's just about taken over all of my spare time, though it's for pure interest for me, so I don't resent that at all. I'd appreciate your support in any of the following ways. You can tell a friend about the podcast and send them a link to listen to it. You can like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. You can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can donate even just a dollar a month to help me pay for hosting fees and other expenses, and truly every little bit helps. Or you can also give a one-off donation via PayPal of any amount you like. If you have been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. A big thanks to Sarah Skibtower for sharing her time and knowledge with me for this bonus episode. Thanks for listening, and hope you can join me again next episode.